Hello and welcome to Open Door Philanthropy. This is your host, Dave Moss, and I'm here with Carmen James Randolph, CEO of the Women's Foundation of the South. Is that correct? Correct. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Or evening for our listeners, if they're listening in the evening. Yes. So, uh, speaking of our listeners, they know that I like to dive right into it with my guests, so let's do that. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I grew up in central Pennsylvania, in Harrisburg, in Harrisburg PA. And my parents um, were both, uh, my father um, migrated to Pennsylvania from South Carolina. My mother was born in Pennsylvania, but her family had migrated from um, Maryland and Virginia. And then of my cousins on my father's side, I was among that first generation of cousins born in the North. Um, and I say that because I grew up in a family that had deep Southern roots. Uh, my father had what he called a garden. And when I tell people about my dad's garden, they're like, Carmen, that was a small farm. Mm -hmm. um, he had two acres that he... Um, gardened near our home and another five acres, five or six acres that he gardened with my uncle and grew everything. So I can tell you that uh, I loved gardening, but I did not. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up with a tractor in my backyard and, um, you know, planting and harvesting and all of that was a part of my childhood. Um, and that as well as growing up in the AME church where I had both members of my family, both sides of my family, a part of this historic black AME church in, um, Harrisburg. And my cousins were organists, pianists, drummers on the choir, ushers, um, stewardesses, trustees. And um, so, and, my, and that's aunts, uncles, cousins, my grandmother. So a big part of my childhood was anchored in the AME church and in family um, with lots of cousins and um, spending a, a lot of time with my grandmother who actually was the first to leave South Carolina and come North and um, her children and my dad being the last later followed her. And um, I would just say that, that that kind of anchored my childhood. It was filled with storytelling, lots of stories of growing up during the Jim Crow era in the South of, um, on one side of my dad's family, they were sharecroppers and on the other side of the um, family, they own their land and telling the difference in the stories of his grandma, his mother's family and his father's family and um, telling tales like Br'er Rabbit tales and things like that. So I would say later, as I went on to school and study American studies, I took a folk life course. And when I was learning about stories, in African-American culture, I'm like, oh my God, these are things I grew up with. Um, these are the stories of my youth. So- Let's do, pause for a moment in Harrisburg. 
I've been to Harrisburg many times. I used to, when I went to Dickinson, I took the train to Harrisburg and had to arrange some kind of ride from the Harrisburg train station to campus. Um, that's most of my experience with Harrisburg. But you, so you grew up raised by your parents and some aunts and uncles, and they were all Southern. I would say, Korea. yes. On my father's side, all Southern born, moved to Pennsylvania. Moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And what drew people, what drew people to that part of Pennsylvania was Bethlehem Steel. So this is a, this is part of the great migration story. And um, so a lot of my uncles and, and cousins worked in the steel mill. Uh, yes, I've seen, it's big. There are large steel mills. <laughs> I have heard when I went to Dickinson that the, the I've heard the area sometimes called the Alabama of Pennsylvania. The Dickinson's much more out in the, where there are gardeners. <laughs> yes. Um, beautiful farming communities in the in the surrounding area. And I was having lived, I lived a little bit in North Carolina with my folks where they live now. So I know a little bit about this, what the South is. This is and I'm from the North, very far up in the, the northernmost state on the, on the East Coast. And I, when I was in Cumberland County and around Harrisburg, it did seem a little bit more like the South than the North. Would you agree with that? Um, I will. I, I'd agree with that. I would say central Pennsylvania is a very conservative area as well. Um, but for me as a out. child, it was a beautiful place to grow up. And um, like I said, those those years of my life were closely, closely nestled with family. Mm -hmm. um, lots of cousins, aunts and uncles on both sides, an extended family. Um, are any of them still in? Are they all still in Harrisburg? Um, some who are still in Harrisburg. My mother still lives there. My brother is also in Harrisburg. And I still have cousins who live in Harrisburg. So when in those in those moments when I go home and we have family gatherings, it's it's always fun to get together and spend time um, with my cousins and things. So absolutely. Do you remember the first time that you made a gift or did something generous? Well, I tell you this, growing up in the AME church and um, in a very close-knit community, what we exercised as philanthropy, we wouldn't have called it philanthropy. Instead, it was, you know, making fried chicken dinners and selling dinners to help kids go to camp or helping a family that got burned out of their home or making a contribution that way or fundraising, doing a, a, a choir. Um, I was in several choirs and we would do um, concerts as fundraisers and things like that. So I would say I was very active in <clears throat> fundraising in supporting community through involvement in my church, involvement in the what was called the YPD or Young People's Department. And also I got involved in the NAACP as a young person. So I was very active and a lot of that activity involved raising money for whether it was a team, a choir, a family, helping people go to college and what have you. And I can tell you, I remember the first grant 
I received, and I received um, a grant that was called a book scholarship from Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority my senior year in college. And it was that book grant that helped pay for my books my first year in college. So um, I just remember more clearly being involved in fundraising activities. And then I distinctly remember the first grant I received, the first time I received. So you applied um, for, like, I think a lot of Americans, their first exposure with needing to apply for something was college related. Um, but you'd had a depth of fundraising experience, unlike most 17 year olds. Yeah. It probably made you pretty competitive for that book scholarship. Well, um, I was I was such an active kid that my parents often said they were relieved when I went to school. <laughs> I went to college. I was a kid that said the same thing. I, yeah. You know, and I loved <laughs> riding my bike as a kid. That was a big part of my childhood, was riding my bike everywhere. And I was a kid that my parents said, uh-uh. You have too many places to go, too many commitments. You are not just riding a bike. You must get your driver's license. So I was forced to get my driver's license. But like I said, I was in multiple choirs. I was on a debate team. I ran track. I was in gymnastics. I danced for 17 years and um, was a part of student council. So it was just a ton of activity that I was doing. And fundraising was a part of many of those activities. Um, yes, I was, it was, it's a diverse array of activities. There's some of the arts in there and giving back to the community. And I assume you were doing some studying. And Yes, I was. <laughs> reading books, hopefully, right? Well, oh, my gosh. I was a voracious books, reader though. as a child. Just, um, I, would, I would inhale books. You're supposed to, and I, 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 inhaling them, that's very bad for you. <laughs> use your, you're supposed to use your eyes. <laughs> I think that's, that's what they call in the books a metaphor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, um, a very, uh, like I said, a, uh, a lot of different activities. But as you pointed out, you can kind of connect your involvement in all those activities uh, at, through the fundraising. You are kind of a natural born fundraiser, <laughs> right? Was it, do you think it was nature or you've described mostly the nurture of it, right? Your participation in the church, right? And some other things. And then also the need to fundraise when going off to college probably helped with it, right? But is there, is there any, are you a natural fundraiser? I would say more than a natural fundraiser, I was groomed to be a natural leader and groomed to do things like in our church, for instance, youth were given the opportunity to lead the Sunday service at least once a month. So, and that is leading the entire program. So being like the mistress of ceremonies or speaking at key parts in the ceremony um, those were things that I was um, groomed doing. So in terms of being in the position to raise money for things, 
Um, absolutely. Being able, I, I was encouraged to be confident. So the confidence in what it is that you're doing and what you believe in and being able to make that point clear to other people to be persuasive and compelling. Those were, those were skills absolutely that I developed um, as a young person. So you, so you think it's mostly been nurture for you. You were supported and nurtured and now you are able to do it. Yes. Do you, do you think there are any innate skills or natural talents or abilities that, that make someone a better, uh, not just fundraiser, but I would say social good practitioner, humanitarian, uh, community, no, I mean, I talked about growing up with a lot of storytelling mm -hmm. and my dad was just, he was a, he was such a powerful griot. He was a storyteller. So I grew up hearing stories all the time, learning how to tell stories um, and loving storytelling. And I do think being an excellent storyteller is one of the skills that is important in being a successful fundraiser. Indeed. And also a successful podcast guest, I guess. Um, all right. Uh, so um, what kind of uh, causes do you support personally? Like when you, I assume they give you a paycheck there at the, at the Women's Foundation. In fact, I know they do because I've seen... 990. Well, I would say, first of all, um, we offer employees the opportunity to be a way maker. And that is a monthly donor to the Women's Foundation. It's total. You have the option. People can opt in or opt out. Um, so folks I would say first, folks who work there donate to the can donate. You have a program. Yes. For so we at have, the organization to donate to the organization. Yes. So we have you, 100. Percent. And you that? Yes, yes, we have 100% staff giving, and we also have 100% board giving to WFS. And I'm a waymaker, um, first and foremost to WFS. Waymaker? Way, W A Y. You're making Make. the way. Yes, making the way. This is a startup public foundation. So um, we love our waymakers, and we have people who give as, as, um, Anywhere from ten dollars a month to fifty or a hundred dollars a month. So um, you give. So we'll. Uh, I look forward to talking uh, at length about uh, your work life, and sure. it's and it's interesting to know that you donate to where you work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's that's the first. I yeah, also, I'm curious to know about other. Like, do you do you donate to other causes? Yes. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I are. Um, very diligent about donating to nonprofits that work with marginalized communities. We donate to nonprofits that work with people who've been incarcerated, um, both men and women. Um, we work with youth. Um, we donate to youth organizations that serve youth, especially um, considered at risk or youth at promise um, in that age group of 18 to 24. It's an age group that's been near and dear to my heart for a very long time. And um, we also donate to organizations that um, basically support 
people of color in areas that are deeply needed, whether it's health, resources. And then finally, I also support the arts. So um, mm -hmm. support nonprofits that um, Any work in the arts art? and help young people. Pardon me? Any particular art? Oh, gosh. I have um, here in Louisiana, I have supported um, uh, cultural centers. I've also supported um, theater companies. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you danced. Mm -hmm. I did. I did. The uh, as I understand, there's a decent amount of art in New Orleans. A decent amount for sure. I, have, I have been uh, for the podcast to New Orleans. We we as uh, a, a young man I know named Ben Swig who lives there, uh, who's from a prominent Jewish funding family. In fact, his he's Ben Swig the fifth or something, um, and the the name. Swig is on a lot of buildings, and uh, that's most of what we talked to him about. But that's my only time actually ever being to New Orleans. I saw a lot of very cool art while I was there. Perhaps some of it funded by you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you went to American University. Yes. And you, and you uh, majored in American Studies. I sure did. Very American education you had. Absolutely. Uh, I, at the time, wanted to be, oh, I'm sorry, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. You wanted to tell a story. Well, I, at the time, wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. And when I had talked to folks about, well, what was the best thing for me to study in preparation for being a lawyer? I thought maybe I needed to be a poli-sci major. And overwhelmingly, I was told that the thing that would benefit me the most was a solid degree in liberal arts. And, and a solid liberal arts education so I could write, I could um, be prepared for lots of reading, so on and so forth. So that was my plan. I'd go to American University, I'd take, get a good, solid <clears throat> liberal arts education, be an American studies major, and prepare for law school. What I didn't expect <laughs> was how I fell in love with the uh, humanities. <laughs> very good so I think a lot of I mean I think I vaguely remember wanting to be a lawyer when I went off to, I'm not sure if that's even if that was even true I think it's just what I was saying because everybody asks you right what do you want to be and that's a very acceptable answer that doesn't get a lot of follow-up questions um the uh so uh fans of the show will know that my father was a professor of American studies in fact he's been a guest on the show a couple times. Um, he, uh, and when I was asking him a little bit about what it was like to teach American studies, uh, one, he said that it changed a lot while he was teaching. I don't need, we don't need to give any specific dates, but he was <laughs> teaching American studies at the same time at Colby College while you were majoring in it at, uh, and I asked him about how it was different then from perhaps now. And he said at the time, it would be extremely interdisciplinary. Yes. There would not be any American studies professors, which now there are. There are people who, they are American studies professors. My dad was a U.S. history professor. And the American mm -hmm. studies department was made up of U.S. government professors, U.S. history professors, uh, English professors who specialize in American English, sociologists who specialize in American behaviors and that, and, and, and that sort of thing. 
Uh, so would you, you would say, and I think, and I know from my time in DC that American university does have a good, strong reputation for being, like you said, you get a good base liberal arts education. Similar, I imagine, to what I got at Dickinson. It was a big, very similar reason I wanted to go there. Uh, learn how to write, learn, like, learn about a lot of different things, get a good general liberal arts education, which I think has prepared me very well. Um, do you, did you enjoy the interdisciplinary nature of your education? Do you think that has prepared you for a career in philanthropy? Absolutely. Um, I, uh, at the time, the American Studies Department at AU was highly interdisciplinary. In addition to the areas that you mentioned, anthropology was a big part right. as well. Yeah. So um, taking uh, courses that were either grounded in anthropology and literature and history um, gave me uh, just a significant grounding in culture and not just, um, I'll just be frank, white American culture, but yeah. other cultures as well. And um, looking at pressing social issues like poverty and how um, poverty uh, develops, has been exacerbated, so on and so forth. It's, it really prepared me for deeper inquiry and um, analysis of situations and, and circumstances, as well as having a broad appreciation and, and love for people and just in the richness of our diversity, as well as how in many ways we are um, very similar. So that was my experience um, in American studies. And then one thing that happened for me after, and I was very active on campus. So my desire to go into law was grounded in wanting to fight for justice and be a voice in the fight for justice. And on campus, I was involved with the Black Student Alliance. I was the president of the BSA for a few years. Very involved in the gospel choir, very involved in writing for our student newspaper, um, our Black student newspaper, which called, was called the Uhuru. Um, so I would say all of those things melded together to... Um, help create a, a deep sense of purpose for me um, on campus. And I was a part of a scholarship program called the Frederick Douglass Scholars. And um, I was one of the first Frederick Douglass Scholars that came from outside of DC. So I was in the scholarship program with other African-American students and ours was the first year that students came from other places than Washington, D.C. So a question that I almost always ask uh, is if my guests had any understanding of how their college was funded while they went there. We've been fortunate to have a large number of Harvard graduates on the show. And I particularly like asking them if they like, when you went, did you know that they had $16 billion, right, or whatever it is? Or how, do you know how much money they have now? It's like up to $70 billion or something. Um, I don't know exactly how American is funded. I think they have um, some endowment or whatever and probably grants. And I know it's major, a big difference between American and Dickinson. 
would be that it's probably a lot more practical because of its location in DC, a lot more like real life opportunities. I know now that the internship program, because I've, I've, I've myself have had many interns from American, which would be harder to do from a place like Dickinson. Um, I suspect that when you attended school, you had a pretty decent understanding about how some of the stuff was funded. Not just- I did not. So, so you didn't know how this, you, you didn't even occur, yeah. So I think that's intentional. I think colleges don't necessarily want the students to understand what's going on, like how the sausage is made while they're there. Yeah, exactly. Nearly afterwards, it's like, we need money, oh, hey, alumni, we need money desperately, uh, which works very well. They are some of the best, they're some of the best fundraisers. Absolutely. In addition to the, the financing of the campus, which you've candidly admitted you did not understand at the time, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, you were applying for some scholarship programs like the Frederick Douglass and other things. Did you understand how, well, I, don't, I, I don't imagine that this was funded by Frederick Douglass. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, you might have, I didn't, I, don't, I didn't want to speak. I wasn't wrong. And, and honestly, <laughs> no, when true. I was a student, I did not know any of that. Those were, that was not a place of my awareness or even understanding. Hmm. Mm -mm. Um, and uh, I mean, do you think you would have been, uh, I mean, you were, you got into the school and you won the book scholarship and you the, you were a pioneer for the, the Frederick Delgert scholarship. So it was working out for you. Um, uh, what do you think about the fact that it was like that, that 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 these were just sort of apples put in your road for you to run after, right? That you weren't necessarily understanding who was placing them or why. Um, I would just say, as an African American student who worked hard, who studied hard, um, to be able to secure an academic scholarship that made it easier for my parents to be able to. Um, afford me going to college, um, you know, because I announced to my parents I was going and uh, ironically, I'd only applied to one school um, and that was American. I was told that's where I should go. So that's where I applied. You only applied. And yeah. And then I was contacted. My guidance counselor was like, listen, you need to apply to other schools. And I have a recruiter that wants to talk to you from Rochester. So I didn't want to apply, but I ended up applying and I was offered an opportunity to go to U of R and I, I turned that down for American, but, um, you know, my, my poor parents, you know, I was just, I was, I basically told them what I was doing and they had no clue how they could make it happen for me. Um, and it made it possible for me to go to school. How did you find out about these opportunities? Do you recall? Um, well, yes, there's a very clear way that I found out about the book scholarship. So I was a, a, a debutante. <laughs> and I was a debutante in I had a, debutante I had a two. for um, <laughs> Alpha Kalpha Alpha during my senior year. And part of being a debutante actually is fundraising for Alpha Cap. Mm -hmm. For was fundraising for the um, for the sorority, and so as a debutante, they look at everything. They look at your grades. They look at your your civic involvement, so on and so forth. And from there, they determine who it is they make awards to. So I didn't uh, even apply for the book scholarship. That was 
awarded to me on merit. And then um, also in terms of uh, American University, I had applied, I had gotten into the school, did not have a beat at all on financial aid, how we were going to make it work. And it was upon my visit to campus that um, I met representatives from the Frederick Douglass program who talked to us, who then encouraged me to apply. And then I was awarded that scholarship. And I'm glad that you were. It seems, it seems to have been worked out. I think that was a good investment. Mm -hmm. The uh, It's very interesting to me. Uh, we This is the open door. I, I hope my questions don't sound too probing, but this is the open door philanthropy podcast. We like to understand how these philanthropic decisions are made. And I, think, I, I happen to think that one of the reasons that folks, so many Americans do not understand how these decisions are made is that their first experience with it is often through the through some sort of college application or scholarship application process, which is generally done behind closed doors with little understanding from the applicant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then when they graduate from school and have to apply for real grants from foundations, they're not necessarily in the best of positions because they don't really understand how this stuff, how these decisions are made. And there is, it is, grants are different from scholarships, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Because um, scholarships are individually based. And grants are based on Can the organization or what have you of, a, of an organization. And I would say this, like I told you, my thinking when I was in school was I was preparing to become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know diddly squat about the nonprofit sector. And I also didn't know anything about philanthropy. So I was involved in thinking that I was going to be a part of uh, a fight for justice and not understanding um, how this all plays out in community. And I wasn't even necessarily thinking I was going to stay in DC. So what mm -hmm. um, I'm familiar with that led, led me to um, this on this course was I decided to wait a year before going to law school. And in that time, I applied to a for a job at the uh, Humanities Council of DC at the recommendation of my former advisor from college. She said, this is a job. I think you should apply for it. You would be great working for the Humanities Council. And um, at the Humanities Council. Well, on a broad level, they regrant funds from NEH to community. So it's a regranting entity. But it also does programmatic work. So eventually I was hired as um, the director of programs there. And I did some regranting work, um, but I also worked very deeply in community. I worked in public housing communities doing public humanities programs. And that's a big way of saying I did programs that were grounded in both literacy and helping to build literacy. And also for seniors, I did oral history projects. Cool. Uh, so uh, it sounds like it's a desire for the, the desire for justice that originally made you want to be a lawyer is also what gets you into this first job where they happen to do grant making, but that's not why you, you weren't like, I want to get into grant making, I'm going to go there. Uh, as an aside, at Unfunded List, we have reviewed a couple submissions to the Humanities Council. I believe they were arts projects, some other... Um, 
local DC based stuff. Uh, so, but you're there for a while and you get promoted a couple times. I assume at some point you develop an interest in philanthropy and start to think of yourself as a grant maker. Well, uh, in order to, for instance, the program that I was charged with um, developing, it was called the City Lights Program. Wow, that's really reaching back into my memory. It's called the City Lights Program. And I remember when I first started and I started talking about what we needed and what my ideas were, the woman who I worked for said, listen, you have a $30,000 budget and that includes your salary. So if you want more, you're going to have to raise the money. And so therefore I set out to learn how to fundraise and how to raise money from foundations, how to raise money from donors and um, eventually grew that program to a half million dollar program with a core of 12 writers that were working with me from the writers core. Um, so I also ended up managing an AmeriCorps program. Hmm. Um, and having the experience of growing that program and fundraising, it helped me build relationships with local foundations and people working in the philanthropic sector. And from there, you, you went on to work at the Eugene and Agnes Meyer Foundation. I think they just call it the Meyer Foundation. Condolences to Eugene and Agnes for getting dropped. Um, you were you, so I lived in DC for 15 years, and you worked. I think you worked at the foundation for for 15 years. We overlapped uh, a decent amount. I know that it's a like it's a it's one of the big one of the big shot foundations in the DC area. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'd love to hear about your time working there. That's a long time to be at like a leading foundation? Yeah. Um, well, I would say 15 years. when I first talked with former president Julie Rogers about working at the foundation, she let me know that she had been following my career for some time and was very interested in bringing me on board to work at the foundation. She also let me know that I was the youngest person that she had ever talked to about bringing into the foundation in a programmatic way. Not the, um, not the youngest person she'd ever talked to. About bringing, yes. And she had met some, she had like spoken to children before. Of right? course. Like holiday parties and things. I yeah. wouldn't be surprised, I've met Julie myself and it's, it's possible that she's only ever spoken to adults. No, it's not. Well, I met her <laughs> in terms of- She was very professional. Hiring as a program officer. So she brought me on board as you were Meyer's a, youngest program officer. Okay. Yeah, and at they the were, time. They counted a long time ago, in like 1940s or something. Well, and I tell you, when I came on board, I was 29. I had my 30th birthday there. And um, all year. of my yeah. colleagues were in their 40s and 50s, some even 60. Because at that time, philanthropy was the job that you oh, were Very old. Yeah, These you, were, you said it much more different. You, you called it the job you retired from, right? And yeah. you know, I just said old. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 in my experience with philanthropy in DC is with the decision makers and even the program, everybody was very, was, especially when I was in my 20s, it was actually kind of difficult. 
because they, they were several generations removed from me. Yeah. And so you're talking about a field where these jobs were highly coveted positions mm. and people got in them and were made to be very comfortable and didn't leave. So that's what the field looked like when I entered and not too many people who looked like me worked in philanthropy in DC. So not only were we, were we talking about much older, but we're also talking about um, uh, very white. So mm -hmm. not a lot of people of color in the field. There were some, but far and few between. And that is something that I saw change and I was a part of that change um, while I was in philanthropy in DC. And I would say that Meyer um, was very intentional, not just hiring older people, but also hiring people who had deep experience in the nonprofit sector, more than fundraising experience, but deep experience in the nonprofit sector. Most of my colleagues, and um, by the time I had gone there, I had been interim director of the Humanities Council. I'd been an assistant director, so I'd managed a nonprofit. I'd worked with the board, and all of my colleagues shared that experience. Um, all of my colleagues had run either arts organizations or nonprofit management organizations or health organizations. Um, so there was a real understanding of what it takes to do the work and also a deep um, and a deep and spoken charge to build partnership with nonprofits in the community. And I will say that being a foundation that had so many organizations applying to us, it was just the volume was incredible. Mm -hmm. And um, I focused on youth, um, youth and education. And if you can imagine how many youth serving organizations there are in the DC yeah. metropolitan worked, region worked for or several. education groups, I would have easily in a grant round 80 to 90 proposals or 90 letters of inquiries to review. It was just a big volume. Of, of folks. So getting to a yes was, it took time. And we, there are folks a number who, of program officers on the show. And I almost always ask them for a specific number, like how many do you individually have to get through? And I'd say that the average I've heard is like 30 to 50, 50 at like the higher end. So you were, and I, I it makes sense to me. I worked at the Seed Foundation for a while in DC and some other youth serving organizations. And it was anything I applied to, I, we, we knew education and, and, and also health are the two just most competitive things you could possibly apply for. Your proposals better be, doesn't, I mean, you, you gotta go do good work, that's a given, right? But, then, but also your proposals need to be ship shape. Uh, and that's something I like to like get into the meat of on the show here, uh, cause that's something where the door like that reading those nine proposals and making those decisions, that's where the door has often been closed. With a couple of old white guys in there, or maybe just one old white guy, right? Making some like, you know, some, some random decisions, possibly, or just sort of decisions based on who he knows and, and whatever. The thing that's most interesting to me and... in philanthropy right now is what you were talking about. Uh, and it seems to be a very encouraging trend 
found, and it's, and it also seemed kind of like common sense. Foundations hiring people who actually know what they're doing as program officers, right? And not, and bringing them from the field that is being funded so that they can actually understand what's happening. I think the best grant proposals that I've ever read here and that I've ever been involved with have actually been written in collaboration between grant writer and program officer, right? And are, have been more communications tools, transparency tools between funder and fundee than request letters. As a like open request, right? Read all these proposals from all these different organizations and pick which the best one is, right? Just based off of only this document. Well, you get one document per organization, right? That seems difficult. But I, but I do think that the, that document can be a very useful tool in an ongoing process for hopefully you have a relationship with grantees. So can you talk a little bit about, did you have relationships with grantees oh. or with grantees while you were reading those proposals? Absolutely. And I developed deep relationships with folks. I've encouraged folks if, um, and I say this now to nonprofits, that don't take a no as no, not ever. Mm -hmm. And always seek to understand why and ask for that feedback. And it was something that was very important to me to give folks feedback as to why we were not able to fund them or what would make their request stronger or more strategic. Or if it was something that was absolutely new on the scene and I wanted to learn more, I'd encourage people to have those conversations. So there were times that folks had to probably applied for the better part of two or three years before I could get them on my docket. Um, so in that time, it wasn't that there were no conversations, there were conversations. I encouraged people to include me on their mailing list, to learn more about what they were doing, how they were supported, what their events were, so on and so forth. Um, I <coughs> couldn't promise to go to all the many events that yeah. were happening in DC, but certainly I would try to be in community and um, attend things that I was able to attend. So absolutely, I developed deep relationships. And the other thing about Meyer that I think is um, was unique unto itself at that time was that Meyer believed very strongly that general operating support was capacity building mm -hmm. and that you could build nonprofits, you could help them build their capacity by giving consistent general operating support. And then also Meyer had one of the first um, management assistance or nonprofit, a nonprofit effectiveness programs there. So yes, we I ran remember our management assistance program right, yeah. alongside our grant making program. So the kinds of questions that I was asking grantees and the kinds of support and how that lined up with the management assistance that we were giving them, that was strictly about how we helped them build their capacity and specifically at strategic moments in an organization's growth, whether it was, this was the moment they were staffing up or this is the moment where they were planning for leadership succession, or this is the moment where they were getting their first building. And it was about how we prepare them for a capital campaign. Um, and this kind of grant making went hand in hand. So 
our our grant meetings and, and questions of grantees was about their board, was about the engagement of their board, was about their capacity to do fundraising, was about their ability to provide benefits, health insurance, retirement for their employees. Um, what their internal practices were like. Did they have um, internal financial procedures and policies that govern the organization? So those were not questions that I think that a lot of nonprofits were used to, foundations asking them, but we weren't asking those questions and um, uh, responding in a way that was punitive. Like, you don't have this, no. Instead, it was, what are the resources we need to help shore up this organization and help it grow? So one of the organizations, just to give you an example, that I was very proud to be the first um, donor, the first program officer that supported them was the Patricia Sitar Center. And when the Sitar Center first came to us, it was a it was a small little program in the basement of an apartment in yeah. Adams Morgan and getting, helping them secure Meyer funding. And what we were very clear that Meyer served as like a good housekeeping seal of approval. If Meyer funded an organization, often other dollars would follow. Mm -hmm. So here, this was a tiny, teeny, tiny little after school music instruction program in the basement of a building in Adams Morgan and giving them very strategic, consistent support, growing our support. I don't even remember what that first grant was like. Maybe it was ten or $15,000 to a point where we were giving them maybe upwards of sixty or 75000 a year and supporting their executive leadership, supporting their board development, supporting their capital campaign, you know, and that led to them having a beautiful center that serves hundreds of children um, in Adams Morgan. So just to give you an idea. Of uh, yeah, that's excellent. So I, one thing that was in my mind as you were telling that, one, you that's, I would say, best practice funding, especially for like new organizations. And I think it's a good example. Folks in the D.C. area will know the Sitar Center, and if they were there, yes. it went from being small to just, I, know, I noticed, I, I lived in the neighborhood, I lived on Ontario. Uh, we at Unfunded List review a lot of proposals for Mary's Center, which is- mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, I have a board member who is the, one of their grant writers. Um, and um, I should also mention, we've reviewed many proposals submitted to Meyer, <laughs> right, folks. So like they get the, and they would mention that they would get the feedback from the funder itself, but then they would also come to us because we give independent, right, outside feedback on the proposals, which they often quite helped. Um, a lot of the stuff that you were doing in there, general operating dollars, um, right, uh, and right, working with organizations and right, thinking about management assistance is, it seems to me, the kind of stuff, idea, the kind of ideas that you'll get when you hire nonprofit folks as program officers. You're nodding. Yes, it is a podcast, so the folks at home won't know. But it was—it yes. seemed like a vigorous, seemed like a vigorous nod. Um, my experiences with foundations that do not have anyone with that experience, right, have sometimes been. And this is something else you mentioned. 
Right? So like, for instance, the sustainability question can sometimes be phrased in a way that seems accusatory. Why aren't exactly. you more sustainable? Right. When, when in fact, what they were like, they just wanted to know what you're, what's going on with your sustainability. But when you're a, when you've been in the position of reading that proposal, you might, you might understand and, and ask the question in a better way. A lot of the authors that come to us are terrified of that question <laughs> and, and don't know like what funders are asking for on it and everything. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, right, they not haven't necessarily been the shoes in their shoes. So, so would you agree with that? Do you think these tactics came from Meyer, like deliberately hiring people with with experience? Oh, most definitely, as well as supporting research to understand trends in the field. Mm. Um, there was the Compass Point study that we supported that looked at executive leadership in nonprofit mm. sector and what challenges executive leaders faced, um, especially leaders of color and how their experiences were different. Um, so I would say through not only the experience of the, of the people that were hired, but also the practices, the interest in research and deepening our knowledge of what was happening in the field. And then the, the last thing that I would say that was different about my experience with, with at the Meyer Foundation, it was a part of my job description to be a leader. It was a part of my job description to be a leader locally and nationally in my, in my intended area. So I was not only encouraged to be a part of leadership locally. So I was very involved in Washington grant makers. Um, chaired working groups of Washington, Washington Regional Association for grant makers. I used yes. to make I used to make um, videos for them, and I I'm the one that said the name in at yes. the end of the videos, which they just changed. And actually, I was going I didn't write this in the questions because they changed. They announced it this morning. They've oh, changed. Their, I that you you've this is an excellent segue because this is the next question I was going to ask you. And I apologize, it's not in the script. I know they have changed their name. They rebranded today. Oh, okay. And what's the new name? So the Washington Regional Association of Grantmakers is now Philanthropy DMV. Philanthropy DMV. And I did briefly okay. read the description as to why, and they said that it is more inclusive of their partners in <laughs> Maryland and Virginia, I guess. Just saying okay. regional wasn't enough and too much. And also it is RAG is an unfortunate acronym. Yes. It did not mention in the press release. Um, but there's another... Uh, important philanthropy organization in DC that cataloged for philanthropy. Yes. They rebranded earlier this year as well. And they are now called Spur Local. Spur Local, that's cool. Spur, Spur Local, yes. And the focus is about, I think it's a focus on local giving and spurring, yeah. spurring it. <laughs> yeah, or spurring giving. So, uh, and so this is so, I guess it's news to you that these, these rebrands. Yes, it <laughs> is. This, these are these are organizations that you were involved with that had, I think, kind of older names, names that they were given their names a long time ago by a yes. previous generation of philanthropists, by older yes. white folks. It was older white folks that chose those names, and I'm certain that there were that there were young people of color involved in these rebrands. Well, I can tell you that there were people involved in the working groups of Washington Grant Makers, which is now, you said, Philanthropy DMV, yeah, philanthropy when I was DMV. present. 
And um, we, it was a space where we got to be activists, honestly. And um, I can tell you, I was quite proud to be a part of a movement to help create what um, unfortunately no longer exists, but it was called the Children Youth Investment Trust Corporation, the trust. Yeah. And we um, secured millions of dollars from national philanthropy at a time when national philanthropy was not investing in DC, just point blank would not invest. And so I was a part of going to New York, meeting with different funders, talking with um, different funders and getting them to invest in the trust, to invest in DC and to help build a system of out of school, of out of school um, care and support for young people in DC. So um, being a leader locally to champion work, to champion our city, to bring resources to our city from national funders was a part of the work, but also in terms of the charge to be a leader nationally. Um, and this just wasn't the case with me. My colleagues also were on the boards of different affinity groups or um, whether it was uh, grant makers for health or grant makers for the arts. We were involved in, or NFG, we were involved on those boards in those um, affinity groups fairly deeply. And I think that in all that helped to establish the identity of the Meyer Foundation is much bigger probably than what we were because we had presence not only on the local level, but also actually was I did, when I looked up the endowment, I was it, it was much smaller than I thought. I think the na their name rings out a lot more. It's I mean it's hundreds of millions of dollars, so no one played the violin for them or anything. But I assumed billions based on the like reputation and the role. And I think it was they were just leaning into their leadership role. Um, I and I I wholeheartedly agree that and I uh, so one of our very first guests on the show was Barbara Harmon. At the, yes. at the catalog, and I've and we have, I think at least half of their current staff of Spur Local reviews proposals for me. Uh, and uh, previously, I did do some. I, I made uh, David, who's editing this podcast, and I did some videos with. Uh, God, I'm straining my memory here. Tamara, is that her name? Oh, Tamara Copeland. Yes, that was her name. She. So we worked with her on on a video project with the putting racism on the table campaign to get funders to talk more openly about racism. An interesting part of that was that there were some, some of the funders pushed back very hard uh, just about talking about race. <laughs> In the survey data, there were many of them wrote like at length that like it shouldn't even be discussed in, during grant makers. They were the minority opinion, but it was very interesting to hear. And I think that is an antiquated idea. Uh, but my, my specific question is here. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. These two organizations have done great work. Why would they both feel the need to rebrand now in 2023? You suppose? Um, I I have been so deeply. It's been and I and I must say yeah, this, you're outside of it now. Yeah, I've been outside of DC now for in nine. Some ways, that's years. why I'm interested in your opinion on this question. Does it? Yeah, for nine years, and I would say that you know, um, whereas when I was in. DC, where it was harder to get people to talk about race. I remember Terry Freeman, um, when she was leading the Community Foundation, she was the first to start this Putting Race on the Table initiative. 
And it was one thing to look at disparities in education. It was another thing to look at disparities in healthcare. But to name those disparities and talk about the people who were most vulnerable or impacted by those disparities in terms of African-Americans, in terms of, of Latinos and other immigrants, it was very difficult to get people to even say those things, let alone to develop specific strategies that address the communities that were most impacted by disparities. So that's where things were in the 15 years, you know, and now that's 20, 25 or so years ago when I was working in DC. Over five years. Um, and working in those issues. And then, you know, I think we're at a point, especially given the racial reckoning that's, that this country has experienced um, since the brutal murder of George Floyd and so many other African-Americans where we've had to reckon with this issue of race in, in new and profound ways to say, wait a minute, this is not a race neutral country. And if you thought so, if you believe so, you were fooling yourself. I think from 2016 on this, you know, we have been confronted with such deep polarization in this country um, and polarization of ideas and acrimony around difference and around being inclusive and telling more inclusive stories and putting other people's histories and making them valid. And we are in such a pendulum swing um, back to um, really harmful policies and actions. I mean, that I think these are, and especially being in the South, we are feeling these changes so profoundly in terms of deeply trying to, um, you know, outlaw sharing people's history, you know, banning books, um, having trigger laws around affirmative action. Uh, we have some states that if you receive, if you are an organization who's doing DEI work, you cannot receive state dollars. And if you receive funding from an organization that provides, that is a DEI funder, then you can also lose state funding. I, I suspect so, we see even more of that in the, in the future, unfortunately, depending on how. Yeah. So I think our Just times... Close, I, I'd like to close out D.C. Whenever I have a guest who spends some time in D.C., we have to spend some time talking about it. No, that's fine. I think but, we'll, I would like yeah, to say, with, I, oh, but I would like to say, I think the moment has called for those who are interested in racial and gender justice and those who are committed to um, truly um, fighting disparities in education, in um, economic security, in health and well-being to take a fresh look at how we define our work and how we name that work moving forward. Um, and, and then just to close in the rebrand thing, I think that's generally what's happened. I think that, that, and I think DC foundations came together through RAG and some other things and were 
ahead of the curve when it comes to putting race on the table with their grant-making processes, which is now something that foundations, social justice-minded foundations across the country are ha have been working on for a while now, uh, and sometimes struggling with, <laughs> not always doing well with, which I, I hope to talk about more in a bit. Uh, but I do think, particularly in DC, those two names, Washington Regional Association of Grantmakers and Catalog for Philanthropy, where a particular catalog was like the British spelling and everything, and it was just sort of associated with an older mindset of philanthropy. And these organizations now have new folks working there and that who are leaders and who wanted names that that better that better suited their names. Right. And I think a lot of that comes down to inclusivity. I think even the worst of grant makers can get better at grant making with a little inclusivity. Um, right? A foundation founded by Jewish folks, right? That's funding in areas with very poor black folks can hire a sharecropper's granddaughter as their program officer. And it's a pretty easy way to get better at that kind of funding. However, the, the effort that it takes, and I, I need to say this, hmm. to turn around what's called or considered a legacy charity. I shouldn't make it seem easy, you're right. It is not easy at all. And it is the work of changing hearts and minds and um, doing that work first with the board and the leadership and then with the staff itself. So it's not easy. So uh, about an hour into the podcast, we're going to talk about your current, we're going to start talking about your current job. <laughs> you are the CEO of the Women's Foundation of the South. Yes. They, my guess is you do something funding, you fund women in the South. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, no, I have looked over the website a little bit and I have some questions here to ask. One thing I'd love for some, some clarity for the audience and for myself, I noticed that you spelled women a couple different ways on the website. Can you, can you explain? Yes. Um, well, the Women's Foundation of the South is a new public charity. We're a new public foundation. We opened our doors in 2021 and the planning that went into creating the Women's Foundation um, started in late 2019 and engaged a diverse group of women. So in that group of women, we had um, Black women, white women, Latinas, Muslims, trans women organizers, queer women, and young women. And at that time, so we, the organization was named and the charter was established for WFS and then the planning for actually mounting the foundation started. And in that process of engaging the kitchen cabinet of women and talking about how to make it inclusive, one of the the um, recommendations that came early on was to have a different spelling of women and, and spell women with an X to be inclusive of non-binary people. Where we are now, um, just in terms of where culture is moving, where the field is moving, we've heard from our trans women um, allies that the spelling of women with a X 
is challenging for them because it feel they feel as though it places them outside of a definition of, of, of woman. And they would prefer that we spell women the way that women is spelled and be very clear that that includes trans women as well as and that we also support non-binary people. So this is a language. So I'm, the point that I'm making is that this is a, an area of growth, of inquiry for us and evolution. And I think we're at a place now where we're going to start removing the, the, the X, go to the traditional spelling of women and make it clear that we support trans women and non-binary people. I think so language is a is a not a static thing. It's dynamic. It flows and changes. If you were to meet people speaking English five hundred years ago, we would not understand what they were saying. And people five hundred years from now will not understand this podcast. Um and I think it's just you're you're I think generally I agree with that. I also think it could potentially Right, I, you want to include the people, particularly the people you are funding, and make it clear to them that they are included. Uh, but also, you need you do need to do fundraising and explain to the public what you're doing. And exactly. The two, the two spellings confused me. I'm a pretty inclusive guy, Orson philanthropy, and I it was hard for me to figure out, particularly that the and I think you clarified it. They had already named it, and then you decided yeah. to using the language, and now in fact, just going backwards. I'm but having, now we're going back. And we're I similar issue here with. Take a moment. It sounds very similar to me to the, the international philanthropy is going back and forth on global south, right? And whether like, so we need, there needs to be some sort of terminology to refer to the countries that receive grants versus the countries that give grants, but that's a lot of words, right? So then there was third world in the past and that's, that, that's long underused and marginalized. I, global south is the, the one that's being used for the most, and what's very interesting to me is that the people who have said to me that they don't like it all live in the global north. <laughs> the, and then wow. the who I work with, like the actual proposal authors who live in the global south, are like, yes, that's fair. That's a fine way to describe it. Even though sometimes it very much doesn't make sense. So, like, it doesn't include South Africa, <laughs> and it doesn't, and it does include Ukraine, which is one of the northernmost countries. But it's not so much a geographic thing. It's bizarre. But yeah, sometimes, and it's just tough. I think it highlights, and we can move on from language. Language can just be bizarre. And especially when you're working with like, philanthropy often involves people from two different cultures trying to work together. That means they could be using different like different types of language. And it can just, it makes, it's just one of the many things that makes the work difficult. Anyway, so, so thank you for that explanation. And for your work uh, on behalf of women of the South, what is it that you do for women of the South at the Women's Foundation of the South? Sure. Um, the Women's Foundation of the South is committed to building health, wealth, and power for women and girls of color in the South. We recognize that of all philanthropic investment, women and girls of color in the South receive the absolute least. We received $2.36 per woman and girl in the South. And when nonprofits are led by a black woman, that amount is often cut in half. So in terms of how we help 
women and girls of color in the South not just survive here, but thrive is why we were founded and um, why we are committed to building a permanent inheritance for women and girls of color in the South. We're very clear that the issues that impact women and uh, women of color in the South um, are the result of generational harm that's been done, um, whether you're talking through racism or patriarchy. So in terms of the solutions and the investment that's needed to help heal this harm, we're clear that that has to be generational investment um, as well. So we've been um, building this entity from the ground up. We were founded by uh, women of color grant makers and allies. And um, it's been interesting building this from the ground up. On one hand, we do not have a donor, whether that donor is dead or alive, that we're beholding to, um, that we are uh, fulfilling someone else's vision of what it well, means Eugenia to Agnes. support. You don't have to worry about of color. Exactly. What Agnes might have thought of this. Exactly. But the other challenge is, you know, securing the resources and thinking differently um, and thinking outside the box to build a philanthropic entity. And so that has been both fun, challenging, mm -hmm. and exciting. So the, I, I'm, I'd like to get to the practical steps that you've taken towards building the organization in a moment. Uh, but just on the, this is something that we've discussed with many other guests and something that, it, that I actually get at. I'm, some people consider me an expert in philanthropy. That's, that's how few experts in philanthropy there are. <laughs> uh, but I get asked a lot, like, why is the percentage of funding that goes to women of color so low, particularly black women in the U.S.? And like you, you can, there's a, so much, like, we, we, I don't need any more stats. Like I've seen the numbers on it. It's just so, it's, it's the percentage of funding that black women receive in this country is basically the statistical margin of error. Like it's possible that the, that like you get like 2% of all the funding. It's possible that we just counted wrong and you actually get nothing. Right? Like it's, it's so, and, and, and in my whole career, early in my career, I've heard leaders in philanthropy talking about trying to raise this trying to get the percentages up. So there's been deliberate effort for decades. And I, as I understand, it's not really going up. Um, is it? Um, well, the Ms. Foundation who has, who has, um, who unearthed that data that I quoted, they're, they're about to release a new pocket change report. Um, I suspect it's not going up. And I suspect in the South, where this trend is pretty profound because you're talking about um, historical and also deliberate, um, either disinvestment or underinvestment in women and girls of color in the South. But yet, when you look at other indices like the US Women's um, Peace and Security Index, it, it shows that every single Southern state falls below the national average in how well women are do women of color are doing in the areas of health, in the areas of economic security, and also in terms of dealing with discrimination. So 
we have a far way to go to lift the South. And what to was me, that? You, it was $2 out of every, what was $2.36 per woman and girl. Per year? That's, that's the amount of funding that goes to, they get $2.36 a year. Yes. So that, is, that is basically nothing. We can, you can't really do anything with $2.36. Yeah. How can you yeah. get I can't systemic a change? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, sorry, that's a that's I've not heard that particular number. <laughs> that, that is that comes from the Ms. Foundation compared to what so what it would like a white men, young white men. Would you know the number per young white man? I don't know, but there's another number that looks at all women and girls is like sixteen dollars and some change, okay. just to give you an idea. Yeah. But then women period receive less funding than but yeah anytime i see stats on it like i said i don't need to see them but they they're just always so alarming to me it's just so paltry it's not just that it's just a little like that, that it's low and needs to go up it is like we're not doing it we're not funding women of color right and i and i what's confusing to me is again my whole career in philanthropy i've been hearing people talk about how we have to increase this this amount of funding so even with well, it's not it doesn't seem to be going up this goes back to an earlier point that we um, talked about when you were talking about caring about broad overarching issues like poverty, like um, single heads of households, like um, equal pay or what have you, or child care, early childhood. And you are not willing to name the people who are most impacted by these disparities or develop solutions and strategies to support those who are working most closely to these issues who are often black and brown people and other people of color then how are you really truly addressing those issues and there's a trend in philanthropy to look at funding with my i've heard many different terms and and i'm you know I must say that I've used some of them, like funding anchor organizations, funding mainstream organizations, or funding sophisticated proposals. And when you do that, quality proposals versus low quality proposals. Yeah, you're exactly you're grant readiness. Out, grant readiness. You're cutting out <laughs> yep. those community those organizations that often are led by people of color or even um, employing specific strategies that address the needs of people of color when you do that. And um, like, for instance, when we were first took our work to Mississippi and we asked women in Mississippi what their experience was with philanthropy, the first word that was shared was traumatic. And it took me aback and we asked, can you tell us more about that? And they said, well, it's been traumatic to have to be validated by larger white organizations. Um, and to have a funder say, well, who can validate you and validate your work? And often we have to have a white organization, a white leader validate our work. And then sometimes the money goes through them to support us and sometimes we never see it. So those were the kinds of experiences that women were sharing with us. Um, 
And as a grant maker, being in this for some time and some time here in the South, it is profound how these issues play out and how little these leaders who are on the ground, who are solution bearers in their own right, who are most proximate to the problem, are overlooked, overlooked. And that's what we're here to change. So the uh, you mentioned that, the, that there's been a challenge to uh, require the funding, right? Because there is no, Eugene and Agnes did not leave a large amount of money to, to give away a perpetuity. You've had to start from scratch from exactly 2021. So how is the how is the foundation funded? How do you do that? Well, the interesting thing is our first one hundred thousand dollars came from a campaign that we did reaching out to black women who work in philanthropy from across the country. We asked them to give of their own treasure. We asked them to also ask their allies and their colleagues to give. And lastly, we asked them to have their institutions match their gifts. And that activity generated about $100,000 over four months. And then it helped us. That's a great leverage. campaign to work. Yeah, and then it helped us lar leverage larger institutional dollars. So by August 21, we were able to open our doors with $1.3 million. And since then, we have um, raised nearly $7 million in support to support operations, grant making, and out-year funding. So some of that, I don't necessarily, I'm not sitting here holding $7 million. Sure. Some of that is for operations in 24 and 25. Um, but we have committed more than a million dollars in grant making and programmatic um, support so nearly by this year, it would be a total of 80 nonprofits in four states, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Texas. Um, that's an excellent fundraising campaign. It seems to me that the when the larger institutional donors first hear about it, there's already like one of their own program officers donating their own treasure, right? And a whole network of other of people who work in philanthropy saying this is legitimate and six figures already of resources that they had. This has put you in that that's just sort of very clever. You were you knew what you were doing. No wonder they made you the CEO. Was that your that was your strategy? That no, isn't that great? It wasn't. Yep. And I say, isn't that great? Because we have this kitchen cabinet of women yep. who have all poured countless hours into being as I call doulas to I help bring this entity to life. I would and, love for someone to just present great fundraising strategies to me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I can then execute from a chief office. This worked like a charm. And one of the people who helped, who actually, whose idea it was, she um, works with me as well. Her name is Christy Wallace Slater. She came to us from the Kellogg Foundation. She's now our vice president of programs. Um, and we've been able to secure top talent like like uh, Christy working yeah, with on. us and growing the biggest work. funder of K through 12 education in the world, I think. That's it's serial money. Yes. <laughs> so we have Kellogg support. 
Our first um, transformative investment came from Pivotal Ventures, which is uh, Melinda French Gates's um, work. Uh, We're supported by Mary Reynolds Babcock, by the Kresge Foundation, um, several. So I read their emails. Yes, so we've been Kresge has a great newsletter, particularly about people who are interested in funding entrepreneurship. Um, so how does the foundation decide where to give its grants or make its investments? As I understand, you, you also work with for-profit companies. Um, well, we want to look at investing in businesses that are owned by women of color in the South. We have not started that process yet. Mm -hmm. What we have done is we have, um, commissioned a study that is being um, done by Tulane University School of Public um, Administration, the John Lewis School of of Public Administration. And we're working with them to do a study of CDFIs across the South. And looking sorry, Community Development Funding Institutions, CDFI, Finance Institutions, CDFI. Eyes. So looking at CDFIs across the South and how they are in fact or not getting dollars to the ground to women of color owned businesses. Um, So this is a study that we're hoping um, the first part of it will come out next July. And um, we will we're looking at six states now. We'll continue to to wrap with the other seven. And hopefully that will inform what our role is in this ecosystem of supporting women of color-led businesses. So this part, that's still in R&D, so to speak. Um, In terms of the work that we've done to support nonprofits um, that support women and girls of color, on that front, we have... um, It was a part of our strategic plan to do listening sessions across the South, to learn from organizations that support women of color leaders about what their challenges are, where they see opportunities, so on and so forth. 30 days after we opened our doors in Louisiana, our state was hit by Hurricane Ida. And we immediately were like, okay, what is the best way for us to support nonprofits that serve women and girls of color in this moment in our home state? And we decided the most strategic thing for us to do was to put a gender lens on disaster, um, disaster recovery, disaster response, and what it meant to evacuate, what it meant to support people who are undocumented, what it meant for women who were, or people who were pregnant or um, birthing through a hurricane, and what it meant to support communities that are returning from incarceration but need to evacuate. Um, So we instead Um, chose about 28 organizations that were either serving community or needed help being stood back up because they served deeply marginalized communities. And we lent our voice 
to the recovery effort and lifted up these nonprofits. And when we received our first set of dollars to help us um, for regranting, we acknowledged that these groups had been responding to COVID for two years at that point. And those leaders were just exhausted. And now, uh, now uh, Ida, on top of that, we had an eviction crisis happening in our state. Um, there were just a multitude. Domestic violence was at an all-time high. And it's like, oh, my goodness, we can't just pull people away from what they're doing for a listening session to help us build the foundation. So instead, we decided to pour into those leaders to give to them. We created a program called Woke at Rest, which is a play on words. And um, we sent love boxes across the state of Louisiana to these leaders who we knew were stretched and pressed incredibly thin. So how, and we how invited you, them. How did you know that? Well, I had worked for the Greater New Orleans Foundation before coming into this role. So um, I was VP of, of programs there. So I worked very closely in understanding who the ecosystem of nonprofits were, um, especially in, in um, Southeast Louisiana. And then we worked with organizations that were um, that were uh, more umbrella organizations that brought together networks of, of groups, especially in the birth justice area or people who were working with birth support. And then we asked them as community partners to help uh, help inform us as to who those organizations were. So um, so we have relationships with many of the nonprofits, not all, but we have met, we have relationships with many sure, because we were grant makers. There are nonprofits in the South that serve women of color. They probably have leaders who are women of color that did not get a grant from you. Oh, absolutely. We couldn't fund everybody. We had, we had only a tiny okay. amount it's of just, money. You, a lot of folks who don't work in philanthropy don't understand you can't fund everybody. It's not necessarily yeah. a commonly known thing. You do you have to make some hard choices as a funder, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And who we made who we selected for funding were those leaders whose work we lifted up. And we focused on groups who were working with marginalized communities. We worked, we focused on those leaders who were working deep in the coast, doing statewide work. And we consider our three pillars, health, and then wealth or economic security, and then power. We look at being community organizing, leadership development, and power, power building work. So that gave us a mix of folks who were working in everything from the maternal mortality crisis to mental health support on the economic security front, working on housing, working on establishing collaboratives, and then on the power building front, um, working on issues like voting rights and um, reproductive justice, so on and so forth. So that kind of gave us the formula, so to speak, for who we started out with. And then once we went to Mississippi, we knew some nonprofits in Mississippi, 
but we really needed to work with more. So we first appealed to a large group of funders in Mississippi, and we brought, we brought them together for dinner. And we asked them not only who were they funding, but we asked, we also asked them who couldn't they fund. Either because they're not grant ready, they're too small, they lack capacity, da da da, whatever the reasons were. And then we also looked at the same model of looking at organizations that worked um, in collaboration, like broader networks of nonprofits. And that's how we developed our, our group of grantees for Mississippi. And the same is true for Texas and the same is true for Atlanta, for Dallas and Texas and then Atlanta and Georgia. They wouldn't, in order to be considered by the Women's Foundation of the South, you do need to, you need to be somewhat of a useful actor in your community already involved in some kind of work to the point where the local funders or some kind of network or somebody who just, you just mentioned already knows you and has that. Yes. At this stage in the game, um, consider us still in development. The, yeah, you need to learn about, first... you need to learn about these folks. Again, you can't, you wouldn't be able to fund, even if you could identify all of them, you wouldn't be able to fund all of them, right? No. You can't even, you're still in the stage of trying to identify all of them. Yes. And this is our effort to do ground truthing, to understand more about what's happening on the ground in various states to get to know the women who we seek to support and to know what their issues are, how what they see as the opportunities or the challenges in their respective states and in their respective community. Um, we feel it's very important for us to enter place very respectfully and to learn and be in partnership with the women who we seek to serve. So, this, this is our moment of growing this work. It's our goal. We have a pretty big footprint being 13 states. Um, is and we've, We're in four now. We plan to grow to two more next year. And it's our hope that we will grow across our entire footprint within five years. So within five years, we will have connected more than 300 leaders within this space of working with women and girls of color, connected them within their states and across the South. So in the process, do you read grant proposals from the groups that you fund? I personally? Are there grant Do they exist? We do. You know, we we, we have a very strong... You don't have to... Do you, actually, I, I, I hadn't considered that, but do you personally read them? I do, because I get... Um, I get the final approval. Are you and, in your um, 80 to 90 around like you like you were at Meyer? No, it's not it's not nearly on that scale. It's not nearly on that scale. The program that we do called Woke at Rest, we make um, very small grants available to leaders, um, to nonprofit organizations to support the leadership development of their leadership. Um, their leadership development and their restoration, and they get to determine how those funds are used. So they understand that if it's for strictly personal reasons, like to help support a vacation or something like that, then those dollars are taxable to the leader. That's not us, that's the IRS. 
And, and if um, there are other ways that they can support the leadership. So we make those grants available. And part of that is we have, as a part of our application process, a self-care assessment. And on that assessment, there's a possible 30 points for how well you're hydrating, how well you're, you're eating. Are you resting? Are you connecting with families and friends? Um, are you taking vacation? And our leaders in our first cohort scored an average score of nine. Um, and I don't think we've gotten, I think we've raised in that I'd, I'd be interested. I don't know the data for our second and third and mm -hmm. now fourth cohort that's applying, but we look and we, uh, we evaluate how they come. We check in with them via not making them do a large onerous report, but we do an interview phone interview and that serves as their interim. We also check in, um, at the end. And that serves as their reporting um, to us. So we try to bring all the promising practices of the field to bear um, and center that as a way of working with women, um, women of color led and women of color serving organizations. So I worked with, uh, I worked in DC for a long time and I am the founder of the Unfunded List. And through those, both those experiences, I've had the opportunity to work with many excellent women of color fundraisers. Hundreds, probably. I have 1,500 volunteers on my committee, uh, and it is mostly women of color, over half of them women of color. Wow. Uh, and same with, again, I started in DC, and that's where I was recruiting from. <laughs> and I was working at, right, that, that's who, I was just recruiting the people in my office, and that's who was in my office. Uh, but it's all, that's it's been um, a tremendous response, uh, and also a lot of the people who send us proposals for review uh, are either uh, supporting the community or members of it. Uh, and I would say a major challenge I'm hearing consistently, including from the young, particularly young fundraising women of color who are like on my board or on my committees and stuff, they find it very difficult to be effective board members because they're so burnt out at work. <laughs> And that is just a huge problem, right? Because if not, it's not, a, not only is her, the work probably suffering and her personal life suffering, which are the two, by far the two most important suffering. Well, I tell you. to serve unfunded list in the way that she would like because, because of those. And so in her so her civic, you mentioned power, right? It's not just their personal health and wealth that's being hit here. Their ability to give, they, they would love to be able to give feedback to these proposals, but they have to put their personal health and wealth first. And so they don't always have the time to be powerful in that way. It is a very powerful thing to do here, review the grant proposals that we, that we read. So you can be an influ a real influencer, not a social media influencer, but an actual influencer when you do this kind of volunteer work. Um, and I imagine I'm not the only person who's aware of this, right? I am, I'm sure perhaps places like the AME Church are seeing less volunteering as a result of this kind of stuff. Uh, and these are women who've chosen to work in the nonprofit sector and they're getting just burnt out. They're being, they're saying, all right, you're going to be the director of development and communications. <laughs> right. And then we're going to sneak in a couple extra jobs underneath that too. Um, the, as, as, as someone more familiar with the challenges of women of color fundraisers, what are the, like, what are, what are the major challenges 
for all for all fundraisers, particularly. Well, let, let me just say this. Before we move to fundraisers, just talking about these organizations that we know statistically are deeply under-resourced. Yeah. Our work is kind of lifting the skirt, so to speak, to understand what it means to be so deeply resourced. So yeah. I've met leaders who have liquidated their retirements to fund their nonprofit. We've had leaders who You're were talking right now, but pardon me. <laughs> I did. I also, that's, this is a common, I did that. I do not have a retirement fund anymore uh, so that we can do this sort of thing. It's hard to get stuff funded. Lots of folks have done tremendous oh, amounts of personal sacrifice that the public um, aware of, for sure. And also nonprofits who, um, who we've had leaders who are staff of one nonprofit and the executive director of another. So leaders who have to work multiple jobs. Yeah. Leaders who are working at great cost to themselves. So in terms of dealing with toxic stress and just the pressure of being up against what these women are fighting in their communities. For instance, I visited, we visited four nonprofits that do reproductive justice work in Mississippi. And boy, was I floored to understand that the number one issue that they all spoke of was food insecurity. Just would not compute. But the work that our groups are doing are so deeply intersectional because the lives of women and especially women of color are so deeply intersectional that um, you know they're worried about feeding children and seniors and people and saying there are people in their community who are making choices between paying their mortgage and eating. So, um, and we've had leaders that have had high instances of cancer, high instances of high blood pressure, diabetes. So the toll for doing this work and the cost of doing this work as a woman of color is incredibly high. And I would say that's especially true in the nonprofit sector where, where they are often so deeply under-resourced, but just often professionally in other fields. You know, it's, it's sad we lost two Black women who were university presidents this year who, you know, passed away unexpectedly, whether it was heart attacks or what have you. And some people have said to me, you know, I just can't imagine what stress they were under in their job. And I said, well, I think the bigger question is the stress they endured getting to that job as well as on that job. And so working from a place where the, the labor is not valued to at the same amount as our um, male and um, other female counterparts, uh, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just sec is, is the sector. There's some many folks, I, I call it the JV business problem, right? Nonprofits are like the JV business team. They could use the field, right? As long as the varsity team doesn't need it, right? Um, 
do, have you, you, as someone who's worked entirely in philanthropy, right? Can you talk about a little, like, what is it that is different about the world of nonprofits and philanthropy funding versus, right, those who have those who have a bottom line, people who are primarily concerned with profit. Like, what's the what do you see? And so, and this is something you'll have to do at, as I understand, you're currently thinking about at the foundation. Uh, you'll have a different process for funding businesses, I assume. Yes. Yes. So what? So how will you, how will you be thinking about these two different groups? And and for numbers' sakes, nonprofits are about one fifth of the entire economy, all the money and transactions and everything. So it's a so eighty percent of the world is for profit business, and twenty percent of it is is the the philanthropic sector here with its burnt out leaders, <laughs> right? And it's and, and people dying early of heart attacks and all of that. Um, well, I think you know going back to. Uh, my background, you know, you have to look at history and where we are right now and the impact of the pandemic. So none of this was, is within a vacuum. So the pandemic, in the pandemic, you had women of color who lost jobs at the highest rate, were most impacted. Um, in cities like New Orleans, where I live, you have so many women of color who worked in hospitality and in food service. This is a tourist area. We were hard, you know, hard hit. And the group that was hit the hardest were women of color. Um, and in this moment where people are, are pulling up and lifting up from this time, we had more people start businesses. And a lot of them were women of color. So we already had um, a significant number of women of color owned businesses in the South. That number has increased um, through the pandemic. And I would say that in terms of how they are resourced, very similarly, you have women of color businesses, owned businesses that receive the smallest share of investment capital than any other group. percent of VC funding. Yet, they employ from the community and have great potential. Um, I was a part of this discussion that looked at their tenacity. And they early on might present with a high level of tenacity because some of the things that they're doing to be funded, our are similar to nonprofits. There are a lot of um, folks who have done things like liquidate their retirements, like um, take out different, if they have a home, take out home equity loans and so on and so forth. You mentioned so, the, two, the two jobs thing, something I see a lot. I'm talking to folks who are, they have a day job and they're also writing proposals for their nonprofits. Yes. And I'm and in the unenviable, I have to explain to them, I'm like, that's going to make it very hard for you to be competitive because you're doing it after school and they're doing it in the morning with their coffee. Like, <laughs> Exactly. So I would say in terms of differences between the two, um, when it comes to, to uh, women of color owned businesses, as well as nonprofits, that, that are either led by women of color or serving women of color, they share this common experience of being deeply under-resourced and trying to make ends meet however they can. 
Um, and what it does is it diminishes often their own personal wealth and well-being um, to do the work as well as um, put them in a position of incredible stress and strain. Yes. Um, you talked about this a little bit earlier with the, the women in Mississippi, I think it was, that their first response to the word philanthropy was traumatic. Um, but in what do women of color in the South think about philanthropy, the world of philanthropy in general? They Say have, that one more time. I'm sorry. If you were to do a poll of women of color in the South and ask them, what is your opinion of philanthropy? What do you think about it? What do you think they would say? What kind of responses do you think you would get? Well, I think one, many people do not understand or, or consider their giving or how they receive support as philanthropy. Mm. So I think there's a difference between big P philanthropy, professional philanthropy, and small P philanthropy. I think philanthropy exists in community of color and has existed for a very long, long time, time, very long time. in uh, many informal ways, but it's not called philanthropy. It might be, um, you know, the way that we support people who are, you know, pulling together resources to help someone go to college or pull resources together to bail somebody out. I mean, there's many different ways that philanthropy works in community that people don't necessarily understand that to be philanthropy. And in terms of how people who I've encountered seeing philanthropy in the South big P philanthropy South as white. It is often these are unmarked white institutions with white priorities and it's not for us. Mm -hmm. It's not for us. And that is how, unfortunately, a lot of people view philanthropy. They're very clear about the choices that are made and not made to support community. And when certain folks get through, pretty excited, but it's also very clear how difficult it is to get through. So therefore, I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of um, I think there is a lot of distrust of traditional philanthropy in the South. Um, yeah, I, I would generally agree. I remember seeing often in DC, which is arguably the South. To me, it was very much the South coming from Maine. Uh, but I saw, I've seen local polling there and the response to the word philanthropy is very negative. Uh, usually they've just got some, and it's very similar to what you've just said. I think white philanthropists for, for a very long time were very good at talking about their legacy and putting their names on things. And that that's had, that's ultimately had the effect that we're talking about, which is probably not what they intended. Um, when it comes to philanthropy, what are you the most excited about? We've spent a decent amount of time here talking about some of the problems with it. Um, we both work in philanthropy, so we must see its value as well. What are you excited about, you know, especially when it comes to the future? What's, what's, get, what's getting you up 
and excited every day? I am so excited about the promise of collective power of, I mean, this organization is, exists because of will. There was incredible will among a diverse group of women to say that WFS must exist. And it's been that will that has marshaled individual giving, um, national philanthropy um, giving, regional philanthropy, will uh, or regional philanthropic giving, as well as corporate giving. And we are at an exciting place where we are positioned to accept gifts of illiquid assets. We um, had, we received our first planned gift last year. So we started a legacy society and we're, we're working with donors on planned gifts, which is exciting. Um, and basically it's like, how do we, and I think it's coming from working from a private foundation to a community foundation to now this being a public foundation that's being um, built from the ground up. How do we marshal all the tools that we do in philanthropy? How do we marshal all of these tools to grow this organization in a way that multiple people have a stake and feel that this work belongs to them. So that's what makes me excited. And we're bringing all this to bear in um, our endowment campaign, which we will be launching in 2024. And I'm so excited about this endowment campaign. We are calling it ours, uh, we're calling it the Sacred Mothers of the South Legacy Campaign. And we're going to give Americans from across the country, the opportunity to honor a sacred mother from the South whose shoulders they stand on or who has inspired them to dream. Um, and for this, we are partnering with Microsoft Philanthropies to build what this digital presence will be for how we honor the stories of these unsung women, whether they are living legacies or ancestors. And we're in the process of brokering a partnership with Ancestry to hmm. see how we can not only help people celebrate their sacred mothers, but also find them as well. So I'm very excited for what this will look like. And, you know, we're doing things that are just out the box, typically, Nonprofits that have been around under five years don't launch endowment campaigns, but we feel an endowment campaign is very critical for our work. You're, not a, this, you're in a position to, I would say. Just put yeah, like, we want this to be feasibility hat on for a moment. Normally, I would tell someone under five years don't do it, but you you've had some un, like um, unusual success. I, I I hesitate to call it unusual because, of course, I you're you're just the it seems like you put the right team together, came up with the right strategy. And so there's nothing unusual about something like that being successful. But most nonprofits aren't putting capital together like that very early. And particularly, as, you've, as we've noted a couple of times, women of color led nonprofits, much less likely to be able to do a capital campaign. 
Uh, and I agree. That is all very exciting. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. I wish I could tell you that there was a very large number of very wealthy donors that listened to the podcast. Uh, and if any of them are listening, I'm sure that they all, they'll be interested to hear, to hear more and they'll look forward to that campaign launching in 2024. Uh, it is probably mostly uh, another group that we've talked about today that's burnt out folks running nonprofits, listening to the show at work. Soon you'll have to uh, pick something else to listen to or maybe it'll just automatically go into the next episode. Uh, is there anything uh, else that you would like to leave our audience with, Carmen? Well, I encourage people to follow us on social, visit our website, sign up for our newsletter, get engaged, and um, stay connected to us. If you're interested in knowing more about the Sacred uh, Mothers of the South Legacy campaign, get our newsletter, and we will be unveiling more about that campaign um, in our newsletter in months to come. But also, I just encourage people to follow us and join us. Um, excellent. When uh, So uh, my mother lives in the South, so I like the... I like, she's, not, she's not Southern, but she retired down there now, so I like the campaign. Uh, and she is, of course, married to my father, who was a guest on the show once. And when he was on, he spent a long time talking about a guy named de, de Tocqueville, Henri de Tocqueville, oh. who was a French philosopher who came to, who did a tour of the U.S. early, early in our history. And he said the thing that was that, that we had the potential to be the greatest nation of all time, and that the main reason, he also had a lot to say about all the stolen land and stolen labor. Um, but he also said that we had the potential to be the greatest nation of all time, largely because of our ability for regular citizens to form voluntary associations like, like you, like you and the, the rest of the women of the South have with the foundation. Unlike any country before this, regular folks would come together without the permission of their feudal Lord or anybody else, right? And form an organization, gather their capital, choose a mission, right? And go after it. Uh, and uh, so uh, you are, I think the Tocqueville would be very impressed. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people will be very impressed. And it seems like you've already impressed a lot of folks. Uh, hopefully, uh, those of you listening have been impressed as well. Thanks uh, for tuning in. Thank you, Carmen, for joining us. Thank you, David Thank Jeffrey, you. for editing this episode. I think we did uh, one clean cut. I don't think we're going to have any. I don't, there were no ambulance sounds or anything that we're going to need to remove. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you very much, Carmen. I'm sure you. Thank you. Uh, you probably have all kinds of work to get done. Uh, David will find a pretty good spot to cut probably before this. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully, we've already. We have some closeout music as well. Usually, we find a good spot to to go to. Uh, thank you very much. It was a good long interview. Uh, yes, this was awesome. Thank you for having I enjoy, me. I enjoy talking with you. It's neat to, you know, a lot of the folks up here in Maine. Like when they ask me what I do, I'm like, oh, I write, I'm a fundraiser. And that's pretty much as far into it as I get. <laughs> I always enjoy the opportunity to like actually get into the, like have a good long conversation about like the practice and the work and everything. Well, this uh, is great. And I, I said, it is a, it's a thing that comes up for me all the time, not just on the podcast, but with my authors and others. Uh, you're right. It seems simple to me, right? In making large general operating funding in women of color-led organizations will make things better, not just for those organizations that they serve, but in, in, but in myriad ways. Honestly, it's, it's just sort of, it's, it's, it seems very clear that that's what to do, and it's not happening 
Um, and, uh, and it is, and I, and honestly, I'm, I should know, I should know why I should have a better understanding of why it's not happening. Like I said, there are people who call me an expert in this stuff. Uh, and I don't, and yeah, I'm getting, I'm slowly getting into the bottom of it. And there's a lot of folks like you out there actually trying to do something about it. So thank you very much. And I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. We have pretty quick turnaround on the episode. Okay. So, and I don't think there's going to be much editing. So I think we'll have this one out soon. Oh, please let us know when it's out. We'd like to share it with our network. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I am headed now to Alabama. Alabama. Um, Alabama. I'm going for Philanthropy Southeast. And we have Ooh. won our first award. You so won an we award. are a award winning guest. Winner. Yes. Yes. For our Woke at Rest program. So award, what is the what award did you win? We won the truest award. Truest. Um, yeah, Truist, T-R-U-I-S-T. It's named after the Truist the, Award. There's a company, Truist. Yes. Mm -hmm. they're, they're in And this award was specifically for deploying many different tools of philanthropy um, through our programmatic work. So not only are we giving the leadership grants, but we also are um, investing in strategic communications and lifting the voices of the women mm -hmm. who we serve. Um, so it's your, it's so your, anyway. it's a, yeah, you're getting an award for your interdisciplinary work. And you had, yes. It all goes back to your interdisciplinary education. Yes. <laughs> it's why, well, this has been, yes, this has been great. Thank you so much, Dave and David. I appreciate it. And I better get busy. Yeah. My team is coming for me in 45 minutes. <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Well, you need anything for Bye -bye. me? Bye-bye.